0: Coming to you from Beaumont,
1: this is your house call. As cases and hospitalizations fall in Michigan and around the country, you might get the feeling that Omicron is behind us. But what does the data say? What can we learn from this most recent surge and what comes next for us? So while some places consider relaxing their restrictions, we're bringing together our team of COVID experts to discuss what to expect next as we move beyond the fourth wave of COVID. Hello, and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. My goal is to help you and your family live a smarter, healthier life. Today's conversation is about the most recent fourth surge thanks to Omicron. We have our House Call podcast co-host, Dr. Asha Shahjahan here. Hello, Hi, hello. Good to have you here. We also have Dr. Justin Skrinsky. He's one of our trusted voices on COVID. Justin has taken care of hundreds, maybe thousands uh, of COVID patients at the Beaumont Royal Oak Campus. Uh, he's also helped get the word out on safe care for the community. Hi, Justin. Hello. Good to have you here also. Great to have all of us here. So let's go ahead and get started. Lots to discuss. First things first, I'm going to put my... Uh, My timestamp on this information, I think that's important. It is mid-February 2022. Cases are declining all around us, around the state, around the country. But we're still in a place where transmission is quite high, right? The community positivity rate, I think at this point in, in the county where we're sitting right now is about 18%. So Justin, first to you, what are you seeing right now at the hospitals?
2: Yeah, so right now it's it's looking a lot better. I mean, if you look at the case numbers that we have um, at, at Royal Oak and also system-wide, I mean, we're looking at perhaps even um, as low as a quarter of the COVID patients that we had at the absolutely absolutely and, and i think it's important to note too that a lot of the patients are less sick you know you keep hearing that in the news mm-hmm. that omicron is less deadly still deadly um you know again it's a percent chance so you know in terms of the percent chance that someone's going to progress to one of the worst outcomes it's much lower um but you know, it was well said that a lot of these patients are here uh, with COVID as opposed to from COVID. So a lot of incidental cases. Really good point. I, I think I'd like to get into that maybe in the, in the podcast at some
1: point and talk about that because that's been an interesting sort of uh, nuance of the data that we've been sharing with the public.
0: And then just on, in terms of the people that are admitted with COVID, is it still the unvaccinated at a higher rate than those that are vaccinated?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if you look at the, the people that we're most concerned about, it's still the same group that we we're most concerned about from the beginning. So chronically ill, uh, overweight, uh, immune suppression, so our transplant patients get hit especially hard. And you might take a look at the numbers and say, well, that's a high number of breakthrough cases. So if you look at the vaccinated people that we have, and we can certainly drill down to that, but upwards of something like 40% breakthrough cases, one might take a look at that and say, well, that's awfully high, but I can tell you right now that in terms of the people who are here for COVID, So in terms of the people that are sick and in the hospital specifically for COVID, uh, that's the majority of those the vast majority of the sick cases are going to be unvaccinated. Maybe we should talk about this now. I think we've teed it up pretty well. And this is a very frequent
1: question that we get on the socials. Um, you know, people see those numbers and they use this as evidence that maybe the vaccines aren't working the way that they should. I think we want to dispel that rumor. We yeah. want to we want to really try to put that to bed. And the other question is, you know, why can't we get at that exact number, right? We're seeing 40% or so approximately of people in our hospitals with COVID. They're testing positive. They've been vaccinated, but they may not necessarily be there for COVID. They might be there for surgery or for, uh, you know, a sprained ankle or something else. And why can't we really pin that number down better? Well, I think the answer is because it's hard. Right. Because you have to root through these charts one at a time and look at what these people are actually in the hospital for. And that takes time and that takes resources.
0: And I think also is the definition of vaccinated is still the two vaccines. Right. And and so I think that we've been many people have been over their six months to five months of being vaccinated and their immunity is waning. And so when you say that there are people that are vaccinated that are getting hospitalized, it's difficult to tell or like you said, to look through and say, hey, were they boosted? How long ago did they have their vaccination? Because um, many people will say, I've been vaccinated, but they were vaccinated over almost a year ago. Right. So uh, that kind of makes me wonder a lot, too, and especially in the outpatient setting when people say, I'm good, I'm vaccinated. I always ask, when was your last vaccination? And the fact that just like with other illnesses like the flu, you have to get revaccinated to have that protection
1: couple points. I think one is, yeah, we're pivoting away from this language of fully vaccinated and we're pivoting to a new term, which is sort of up-to-date, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you could have gotten your two-dose mRNA series just recently and you would technically be up-to-date. You're not yet eligible for a booster, but you are- up to You're up-to-date. You're protected. Um, the other point is, you know, let's use an example. Let's take a patient who comes to the hospital with severe abdominal pain and has appendicitis right? They're in the emergency room. We're at a place right now where because COVID numbers are so high, we're testing everybody that comes to our facilities. Mm -hmm. This person gets a COVID test and they test positive. Now, upon further questioning, we might elicit the story that, oh yeah, you know, I I had a sore throat and a runny nose, you know, a week ago and I lost my taste and smell how do I categorize this person, right? Does this person have COVID? Yes, I would argue they do, right? They just had symptoms a week ago, they tested positive. Is that person here for COVID related reasons? No, they're not. Right. So what bucket do I put that person into, right? right. They're vaccinated, they have COVID, they're here for other reasons. I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of this.
0: Yeah, I think just really having that determination of hospitalized with the admission of COVID mm-hmm. as opposed to, as you said, coincidentally also having COVID and that will probably give us better numbers of what's going on. Um, But not to say though, like with the hospitalizations being down, it's great. And the severity being down, it's great. And it seems like with Omicron as well, it's more upper respiratory than lower respiratory, So people Mm -hmm. are not getting intubated as, as they were with Delta. But I feel like in the outpatient setting, I felt like everybody had COVID for a while. Like there was a point probably up to about two weeks ago where every single patient was, there for COVID, yeah, and and it was really funny to me because people would say, you know, I think I might have strep throat, my throat's just kind of scratchy, I feel a little bit down. Can I come in for a strep test? And I'm immediately saying, you probably have COVID. It's COVID. Um, it's it's probably COVID, and there's always this like, well, I don't think it is, and I'm like, well, yeah, I, I think it <laughs> is, and then you know, lo and behold, I'll get another call the next day. Oh, doc it's positive for COVID. So um, I do think that it was very prominent in in our communities and many people were getting it um, regardless of vaccination status. But the important thing was, as we mentioned, was the the fact that people were not getting hospitalized as much and not being in the ICUs, not being intubated, um, and the death rates not being nearly as
1: high. Agree. And I think now we're in a place where by virtue of vaccination, or by virtue of having had COVID, the collective number of us that has been exposed to COVID has gone up significantly, and so we're all getting, societally speaking, we're all getting some collective immunity, yeah. and this will hopefully carry us through to, you know, whatever may come next, right?
0: Yeah. So you know what? You know how you were we were talking earlier, and you mentioned, um, you know, the the previous pandemic that. Mm. Uh, you know, you were reading about in the Washington Post. So with everyone kind of getting COVID and immunity being higher with through vaccination, you know, or natural immunity, where do you think we are? Are we at the endemic point? I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on that.
1: Uh, almost. I don't think we're all the way there yet. I think, you know, endemic, it's good to talk about endemic too, because I think a lot of people look at endemic like it's a goal, mm-hmm. you know, like this is like the, the end of the rainbow. Um, and I think we've got to really kind of frame this in in proper terms. Endemic means that it's it's everywhere and it's sort of uniform in terms of its transmission, right? It may have a seasonality to it. Endemic does not necessarily mean good, right? There's lots of examples of terrible things in history that were endemic, or even to this day that are endemic. Like malaria is right. endemic in Africa. Doesn't mean you want to go out and get malaria. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think just separating some of that. Are we moving into this maybe a, a more um, sort of seasonal uh, look to to COVID? Yeah, I think we could be, but again, I, I'm so bad at making predictions, and I and we gotta also remember that with so many of us collectively unvaccinated and unexposed, the community is still ripe for new variants to emerge, and then you know we could all be susceptible again at some point.
2: Absolutely, and I think I think it's important not to just kind of hand wave, and I think a lot of the popular uh, conception is that, well, everyone had Omicron, so that's it. We're done. We've got right. between vaccination, mm-hmm. between natural immunity, we've got enough exposure that this is it. And I don't think that's true because, you know, there's a couple, it raises a couple important questions. And, and one is, you know, do we care about the numbers? And I think that, you know, to say that this is truly endemic means that we don't care so much about diagnosing every COVID case. We don't care so much about isolating. And we're clearly not to that point yet. Agree. Um, I think a lot of people have this notion that Um, You know, Omicron is less severe and that COVID will inevitably become less severe, which is not necessarily true. You know, there's a lot of viruses that do have that tendency and great point. We can certainly talk about that. But, you know, if you look at Delta, for instance, Delta was very tenacious, very deadly. And that was downstream that was worse than what came before it exactly exactly, yeah. exactly. and yeah. also if you look at omicron i mean um right now in order to generate another huge surge you'd probably need a variant which is significantly different mm-hmm. than omicron considering mm-hmm. how much natural immunity how much vaccination you'd probably have to have a significantly different Uh, variant in order to generate a new surge. And if you look at how quickly we saw Omicron as a variant of interest, and then how quickly became the dominant variant, that was a very short period of time, that's a month. So that just shows that, you know, all the predictions that you can make, we can make uh, predictions based on the best available evidence, but at the same time, these things can change very quickly. We've
0: become like, I I feel a new empathy towards um, the weatherman.
2: Yeah, because yeah.
0: they're always predicting the weather, and sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they get it wrong, and it's just based on the science. And so uh, one of my friends is actually uh, is a meteorologist, and he was kind of like, now you, you get where I'm coming from. And uh, I definitely do. But one thing I wanted to bring up, too, in terms of oftentimes when we look at the pandemic, we are looking at it from the lens of the United States. And the fact that we've got boosters, we have um, about um 64% of our population is vaccinated but the pandemic has to do with the entire world and i think that variants emerge when people when the virus is not controlled and there's still a lot of places around the world that are not controlled so for example in india 52% of uh, the population is vaccinated but less than 1% has received a booster mm-hmm. if you look at south africa 28% of the country is vaccinated only 28% And again, less than 1% is boosted. And then you look at a country like Kenya, it's only 11% is vaccinated and less than 1% is boosted. And so when you're looking here in the United States, only 27% of us are boosted. So again, uh, As long as this virus is able to replicate and and get on different hosts, it's going to continue to get more and more variants. And just because things are looking better here, you can end up getting a really bad variant that might come out of a country that is less vaccinated. And so I think we have to look at the endemic point from a global level and not so much just from the lens of the United States.
2: Yep. Yeah, 100% agree. And, and you know, we do live in a global community now. Um, you know, you saw how fast COVID dispersed from its original places. And you look at the two variants that we have that have caused an incredible amount of mortality in this country, and that yeah. being, you know, Delta and Omicron, and those originated in the areas that you just mentioned, you know, right. the, the very under-vaccinated areas. Yep.
1: Well, let's pivot to, well, I guess we're already there. Let's talk a little bit more about Omicron and the the new variant. It's not yet considered a variant of concern, but it is kind of a new thing and that's this um, Omicron subvariant called BA2. Or some people are calling it stealth Omicron. So um, it's a stealth variant because it, certain tests don't detect it as Omicron. It looks a little bit different to certain tests, and I don't want to get super in the weeds on that. Your, the tests do still work, mm-hmm. um, but it is distinct from Omicron. So let's talk a little bit about that. So so BA2, several additional mutations, right?
0: It's like Uh, 37-some mutations.
1: Yep, that even put it separate from the original Omicron variant, BA1. Um, BA2 may be more transmissible uh, uh, than BA1, the thing that came before it, but it does not appear to be causing more severe disease, so that's a good thing. Um, BA1 at least as of this morning when I looked at the data, is still by far the most dominant strain. So the original Omicron is still the dominant strain, making up more than 96% of COVID across the country. BA2 is slowly rising. And when you look at the the CDC data tracker, which is a great way to, to find this in real time, BA2 went from nothing to about three to 4% in the last week or so. So it is climbing.
0: You know what's interesting about that is that there was a study done in Denmark that stated that they found that BA2 was 1.5 times more transmissible um, than BA1. And so I'm thinking that, I mean, Omicron, the original, let's call yeah. it that, was so transmissible that if you got something that's even more, even more so, then it should be everywhere very soon. So the question comes up is, is there some immunity if you've had BA1 to BA2? I mean, I don't know.
1: The answer seems to be yes. So, the currently available vaccines do seem to provide some protection against BA2, just like they did for BA1. Mm-hmm. And having had the original Omicron, Omicron Classic, <laughs> does seem to provide some protection against getting BA2. So, will BA2 get a foothold in places where Omicron has already kind of blown through the population? Hard to say, yeah. right? Maybe not. Because if so many people have already been exposed to what came before it, it may not get as much of a foothold. So, I guess to bring it on home, what does this mean, guys? I mean, does does, does this mean anything for us? Do we care? What should we do about BA two now that it's kind of starting to rise? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think it's still more of the same. I mean, I feel yeah. like every COVID podcast is kind of the same bread and butter of. Know, getting vaccinated making sure you're up to date on your vaccination so if it's been more than five months since your last vaccine it's yep. probably a good idea to get vaccinated um again and then also you know i'm i'm a proponent for for masking i still think that um, masking in crowded areas or indoor places or in places that you may not have high vaccination rates is is still the best way to kind of protect yourself and of course the hand washing and social distancing is needed so that's kind of my take yeah
2: yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think, um, you know, in terms of uh, not just COVID, um, because right now you're looking at Omicron, you're saying, well, you know, now we're talking about the original Omicron and, and you know, versus the original COVID. And, and, you know, you really wonder how many steps do you have to take until you really end up with a new virus at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when people point to the vaccine and they say, well, it's not holding up as well against Omicron, or they point to testing and saying, well, there's some evidence that, you know, things like antigen tests may not be as effective. Well, you know, you're, you're almost dealing with a different Uh, virus at this point. And and I think moving forward, the adaptability is going to be key. So in terms of societally, you know, our willingness to do things like masking, our willingness to be adaptable in terms of, you know, whether or not we're going to shut down large venues or or get rid of indoor dining and and on a flexible basis. Um, And I think that, you know, if you look at the flu, for instance, that was the classic was, you know, where'd all the flu cases go? And it turns out yeah. that if you take measures against one contagious respiratory virus, turns out that you prevent many respiratory viruses that are contagious. So, you know, it's not just Omicron. You know, these things, we live in a very crowded society, we live in a very international society and in 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 order to prevent these sort of issues in the future um i think the adaptability is what we have to take out of this
0: yeah i love that adaptability is key because i think the si- the situation is we're all tired. <laughs> like oh, yeah. people are tired and people like many of my patients are asking me, when can we stop masking? Like, can when is that ever going to be a reality? Is that the future? Like, are we going to be able to see each other's faces and not have to have a mask hanging like in from your car <laughs> rear view mirror? Um, and my answer to that is that I think definitely in the future, I think we will be able to unmask, but I, I think at this point in time, we're just coming down from Omicron and I'm not sure if it's the best thing to t- let your guard down just yet. Well, what do you guys think?
1: Totally agree. And I'm glad you both brought up masking because this has been getting a lot of attention lately mm-hmm. is you know, you're know you starting to see a lot of mask mandates get relaxed. A mm-hmm. um, lot of discussion there. Asha, I like the way you put it. I think that we have to look at what's going on around us right now in the community. We have to say, wow, there's still a lot of COVID out there. Yeah. Great news that cases are going down But when you just take a snapshot of what the numbers are now, still incredibly high transmission, still a lot of COVID out there, now is probably not the time to start peeling those masks off.
0: And you know also, um, so with this last uh, surge, a lot of the patients were in the outpatient setting and I was talking to many of my patients and although they had more of like a cough, cold, sore throat, maybe a little bit of fatigue and they were feeling better, many of them were working from home and um, were able to function, it's kind of lingering a little bit longer anecdotally. Uh, patients are not feeling 100%. A lot of people have lost their sense of taste and smell, and it's n- it's been months since it's come back. So there are some ramifications to getting COVID, and although people kind of equate it more so to, oh, it's just a cold and you feel better in a couple of days, it's not a big deal. It's not always the case for everybody. And then this chronic fatigue that seems to linger on for, for months um, is a problem. I have one patient who um unfortunately, she got uh, the, the original Alpha COVID, hmm. and um, then she ended up contracting Delta, and then now she has Omicron. And um, Lucky. Yeah. And so I tell her that she's the COVID expert because she's had all of them, <laughs> almost all of them. And um, what she's been saying, though, is that although Omicron, she was not hospitalized. She was hospitalized for Delta. Um, she was not hospitalized. She was at home. She felt like she was doing well. She's just so fatigued. And it's been over three weeks since she's been now testing negative. And so, again, I still say that it, you probably don't want to get COVID. Um, like some people were saying, oh, just get, get Omicron and get it over with. I, I don't think that's probably a wise thing to do. There, there's still a lot of ramifications to getting the illness. And so we have to still stay, stay safe. And the best way to do that is you know, vaccination and masking.
2: Yeah, and, and to me that's that's the most compelling reason to wear the mask is you don't want to get it. And and if you look at the downstream effects from COVID, um, you know, even things like there's studies that show brain volume loss. You know, It's very mm-hmm. dramatic things, uh, myocarditis. There's very profound and lasting issues that you can get from COVID. So it's not a cold. You know? and, and if we do see that COVID does follow that trend of, of less virulence over time, if this turns into a cold, then yeah, you know, there's, there's really not much reason to count cases at that point if it doesn't result in hospitalizations, if it doesn't result in severe outcomes. Um, but we're not there yet. Right. I want to share with
1: you guys this uh, this article or, or a piece of this article that I found from the New York Times, and the, the title of the article is "What We Can Learn from How the 1918 Pandemic Ended," and this was published uh, on January 31st, and it was as I said, it was in the New York Times, and I think it's it's apropos of the discussion we're having here because there's a lot of consensus uh, out there in the community that cases are going down. Let's get back to normal as fast as possible. Let's get those masks off. So let me read you this um, short little snippet here. Mm -hmm. Nearly all cities in the United States imposed restrictions during the pandemic's virulent second wave, which peaked in the fall of 1918. That winter, some cities reimposed controls when a third, though less deadly, wave struck. But virtually no city responded in 1920. People were weary of influenza, and so were public officials. Newspapers were filled with frightening news about the virus, but no one cared. People at the time ignored this fourth wave. So did historians. Deaths returned to pre-pandemic levels in 20, sorry, in 1921, so a year later, and the virus mutated into ordinary seasonal influenza, but the world had moved on well before. Hmm. Sound familiar?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I
1: mean, it really is. I mean, it's like we're living the past all over again. History
0: repeats itself. And and it's, it's so interesting to see that we have precedence in the sense, I mean, it's not necessarily COVID, but we have precedence of a pandemic and yet you know, behaviors are the same, right? And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know, do you, do you feel like what is it that we can learn from that? And what is it that we can do differently to maybe save more lives or have things get better?
1: I think now, you know, one key difference that we have today versus 100 years ago is that we have, uh, I'd say, better record keeping, better ability to track what's going on around us. We can tell when cases are starting to rise. Mm -hmm. We can tell when hospitalizations are starting to rise. We have this early warning system. We also obviously have vaccines and treatments and things that are you know, currently available and becoming more available in terms of oral anti, uh, antiviral treatments. So we have a lot more tools in our toolkit today than we did a hundred years ago, but public perception seems to be exactly what it was a hundred years ago. Yeah. Crazy. Same.
0: So talking about vaccines, uh, probably in the next week or so, I think we're gonna have a vaccine availability for yet another group of people, mm. um, you know, kids six months to five years of age. And many of my um, parents, uh, patients that are parents are, some are, are thrilled and overjoyed, and and others are really skeptical and scared. And so I just wanted to open it up and let's maybe talk a little bit about um, the possibility that to this vaccine will be available for this new group, probably as soon as maybe even next week or you got the next it. two weeks.
1: Yeah, you you read my mind. So. Um... I have a couple of talking points here that I want to just kind of get out. So first of all, Pfizer submitted for EUA, emergency Mm -hmm. use authorization, for vaccines, kids six months to five years. The dose that's administered to this population is about a 10th of the dose for adults. So obviously a much smaller dose. Um, The FDA is going to be meeting, I think, next week to to discuss and vote on this. So so to your point, we could have approval very soon. Um, The preliminary data, so important point here, Preliminary data for two doses of vaccines in this group, not that impressive, right? Um, It did not show a robust immune response, but the company is planning on investigating a third third dose, so this will probably be a three-dose series at some point. It'll start off as a two-dose series and eventually likely become a three-dose. No safety concerns, right?
0: So, but when you say that, basically what you're saying is that from the first dose, there is a, a good immune response, similar to what's seen in adults. But with the second dose, the immune response was not as high as it was for adults receiving the second dose. Correct. So the speculation is that if there is a third dose, mm. that perhaps the immunity would be higher. Do you think then that maybe the dosing might need to be increased as opposed to more vaccine, because then getting a second dose, I mean, it's very confusing, because getting a second dose, if it doesn't mount to the the right immune response, it kind of makes people question. So I think people are going to be confused about what to do.
1: Fair question. I I don't want to speculate because I was not a part of those trials. It could have been that they were trying to sort of you know, find the balance between effectiveness and safety. And Mm -hmm. so they were maybe erring on the side of a somewhat lower dose. Could they push the dose? Maybe I'll leave it to the scientists to figure.
0: But I, w- I would say though, it doesn't seem like there's any really bad side effects that are different than what the, the adult population had. And if not, maybe even less. And so definitely at least getting the first dose is important for that group. And again, as schools are starting to lift their mask mm-hmm. mandates, uh, vaccination is key in protecting your protecting your kids.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, people are, are eager to point out that children are a very low risk group mm-hmm. with COVID, but it's not a zero risk group. You um, and, you know, we saw with, with uh, Omicron, we saw an increase in pediatric hospitalizations, yeah. um, which certainly raises a lot of uh, a lot of red flags about Omicron. So, you know, if you're looking at something which is honestly a, a pretty much no cost protective measure for your children, which is vaccination, um, you know, a lot of compelling reasons to go ahead and do that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm going to invoke Dr.
1: Paul Offit, who's uh, uh, you know, a big peds uh, infectious disease and, and uh, big vaccine guy uh, in this space, and he's made some very good comments here. And I think I'm paraphrasing him, but what's the downside, right? You right. know, Yeah, pediatric hospitalizations are up. They're still relatively low relative to adult hospitalizations with COVID,
2: but getting vaccinated, no downside. Absolutely, and and now, I mean, I think you can point to uh, hundreds of millions of people who have received COVID vaccines, and granted, adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think the safety profile is there, and and even now, if you look at the original study participants and things like the Pfizer trial, I mean, we're almost two years out from those people receiving these trial doses so a uh, very established uh, track record i think the people that point to this vaccine call it unproven or untested um you know as time goes on especially very little to stand on yep
0: now thinking about kids and schools and um you know keeping things as normal as possible Let's talk about this antigen test because now um, antigen tests are available. You know, the government has sent um, kits to people's homes if yeah. you ordered them. A lot of people are getting them for free, but it still gets a little confusing for people about um, the ho- at-home, which is the antigen test you know, versus the PCR. And then the people are getting confused about, well, with Omicron, is it even detectable because you have a lot of false negatives? Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, let's. So first of all, um, I think if you if you lived through omicron then you realized that we had some testing challenges mm-hmm. right even still I think and, and if you go back to around late December testing was hard to get so hard in this neck of the woods at least you know if you wanted to get a, t- a covid test it was hard you know yeah. you were waiting a few days I was
0: texting you do you remember that
1: <laughs> I do remember I was that like
0: Nick, I think I need a test. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, it's it was hard. I, I had to get a COVID test at one yeah. point. I had to, you know, on, on Christmas Eve, I was like running out to a CVS pharmacy to get a COVID. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's not easy. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that, um, you know, antigen testing and testing in general is more widely available. So that's a good thing. Now let's talk about how to use it. So first of all, I think the best use for any COVID test, generally speaking, is for the symptomatic population. Correct. Right? Yes. Um, they're useful uh, for people who want to test because you've got symptoms. Um, they can also be useful for testing if there's been a known exposure, a high risk exposure, a household exposure. Your husband or your wife has COVID. You want to get tested. I think there's a sweet spot for that. It's probably somewhere in the three-ish to five-ish day window after mm-hmm. that exposure has occurred, that's probably going to be the right window to test. Now, if you test positive with an antigen test, first of all, let's pause for a second, rapid test. Right? I want to get away from this terminology because there's rapid PCR tests and right. there's rapid antigen tests. So if you tell me you got a rapid test, you really didn't tell me anything other than that the test was quick. I think with any test, if you test positive PCR or antigen, Take it as true. Treat it as the real deal, right? Especially right now with what's going on in our community. There's a lot of COVID out there. If you test positive, I'm going to treat you as as a true positive. Mm-hmm. All right. If you test negative, and you don't have any known exposure that you're aware of or any symptoms, it's probably a true negative test. Okay. Now you may want to confirm that. If you if it was an antigen test, you may want to confirm that with a PCR test. They're a little bit more sensitive. Um, And that's perfectly reasonable, and we we certainly have a lot of folks that do that. Um, But if you test negative and you are having symptoms, so you've got that classic fever, chills, body aches, sore throat, runny nose, and you run out and you get a rapid antigen test and it's negative, I would recommend repeating the test, right? Because there's a discordance there. You have symptoms, but your test is negative it's possible the test could be wrong or it's possible that it's just not detecting what you have yet right and it's perfectly okay to get a follow-up test in that situation does that make sense
0: yeah I, t- I mean I tell my patients that if they have multiple antigen tested and test on day three of symptoms and then day, if it's negative then day four of symptoms and if possible on day five of symptoms and right. you've got all three negative then yeah okay maybe it's negative it could be something else but um, if you do have symptoms and your antigens negative and you can get a PCR then I would recommend to get the PCR to confirm. Um, It's really confusing for people, but like we said, I think the antigen test, which is the at-home test, is a great thing for you know ruling in disease. So if it comes back positive, you don't have to go to an urgent care, you don't have to go to a pharmacy, you can do it right from home, and it's pretty easy to do.
1: It is. And and I want to get away from this idea of chasing a negative test, right? So when we're seeing a lot of this, people who test positive, they may have mild symptoms and they Mm -hmm. test positive, and they say, oh. I don't think this is COVID. I'm going to go get another test. And they'll get one or two or three more tests. And then one of those tests happens to be negative, And they're like, ah, see, I told you it was negative. Right. No, no. If, it's, if you have a positive test with any symptoms, even mild symptoms, treat it as a positive test. Absolutely. Right? Act accordingly.
2: Yeah. And, and I, I've, I've had more than my share of patients who um, will say, you know, test me again. I don't believe it. <laughs> and, and, you know, in you know, PCR, you know, PCR especially, it's a lock and key mechanism. And so if it if it fits, that means that you have it. Yep. Uh, so in terms of the sensitivity, the specificity, it's, it's there for the PCR test. So, um, And also, I think it speaks to the threshold that we just need to have in terms of illness in the society. I think there is kind of a, a mantra that, you know, if you feel good enough to get in your car, then you should go to work. Um, And that's got to change because, right, especially, you know, if we are concerned about things like antigen testing and and any possibility of a false negative, we have to be just especially that much more vigilant. I want to also
1: put in a a quick word here about PCR testing and something we have all seen in in our practices is this, you know, uh, prolonged test positivity with people who have a PCR positive. We saw this a lot when when Delta came in, in December. And then Omicron quickly followed in late December, throughout January. We had a lot of people that had Delta back in late November, early December, and we were PCR testing those people in January, and many of them had positive PCR tests. This is this is uh, not a bug, it's a feature, right? Yeah. So the test will, in many people, be positive for some weeks. So, Interpretation in those situations can be a little tricky. Mm-hmm. If you're having symptoms, again, I would probably treat this like it's COVID. You know, there, there's, there may be a role here for antigen testing in these circumstances. It may actually in some ways be a little better uh, because it doesn't seem to have that same problem with prolonged positivity in right. some circumstances. Yeah. So be, be mindful of that. And, you know, I'm glad we have more testing available. So let's uh, let's bring it on home. Right. We've been talking for a little while here. Let's talk predictions and advice. Um, and what do we want to share with the community? So I think COVID is continuing its transition. Right. Towards, you know, endemicity um, and endemic does not necessarily mean good. And we touched on that. Um, The disease might, Justin, you mentioned this, the disease might become milder over time or it might not. That's not a guarantee. Right. Right. Right? Just because, you know, things seem to be getting milder doesn't mean that trend will continue. Um, And we've been pushing hard on vaccinations and masks and, you know, staying safe, especially when community transmission is high, doing your part. Um, What other things do you guys want to share with the group?
0: yeah, I think you you hit hit it all. um basically, we're still we're still in the pandemic. Yeah, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Things are, seem to be getting better. People are not getting as sick, but I think there also has to do with the fact that many people are vaccinated. So I think my advice would be that if it's been over you know five months since your booster, really don't put it off and and get the booster and remain protected. Um, that's kind of what I would
2: add. Yeah and and I would also say that if you look at the mortality the daily mortality from covid is still exceptionally high mm. you know upwards of 2000 people a day are dying of covid that's crazy um, and it is it is and and it's you you almost wouldn't know it if you went out and about uh, in mm-hmm. certain places, and we see it at the hospital and COVID care for a lot of it has been very compartmentalized, where it, it happens at the hospital, right? Um, and it's out of sight and for many out of mind. But um, you know, healthcare is not an inexhaustible resource either, and that's its whole. It's a se- that's a separate podcast completely.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, that's a good point.
2: Really good point. Um, but the idea though is that it, it there is a light at, at, at the end of the tunnel, and and this is certainly not doom and gloom, but it is to say that you know we're still in the middle of the storm. We see some blue sky in the Distance, but it's not here yet, um, and you know this is a time to really focus. And if we do that, there's a lot of lives that we can save uh, before this does blow over. Yeah, agree. Pandemics do end; it will end. Yeah, let's Absolutely. try. Let's try not to make
1: the mistakes uh, that uh, we made as a society back a uh, hundred years ago with uh, with influenza, and try to keep our foot on the gas. Good talk, guys. I think that's all the information we have time for today. I want to thank Asha and Justin.
0: Yeah, appreciate thank you, guys. you guys. Yeah, thank
1: you. And I also want to remind our listeners to check out beaumont.org slash coronavirus for all things COVID. And um, also, shameless plug here to send your emails and your questions to us at podcast at beaumont.org. We're going to, you know, sift through that mailbag and, and try to answer some of those questions in a future podcast. And I will wrap it up with this healthy thought. As we enter the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have collectively learned a lot about the virus and about the many ways to reduce transmission and keep ourselves safe. Let's not get complacent. Let's keep our foot on the gas. Let's make sure we're getting vaccinated and boosted if we're eligible. Let's wear those well-fitting face masks out in public, get tested and stay home if we're not feeling well, and let's wash those hands often. Hopefully, fewer surges and better days ahead if we
2: all do our part. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit beaumont.org podcast to access information and resources related to today's
1: podcast.